welcome back to the podcast. This is I Like This Thing, where I, Kristen, and I, Mojo, talk about things we like. I'm going to be talking about a poet S, which isn't really a word that anybody uses anymore, female poet called Charlotte Mew. And I, on a similar cultured level, will be talking about the Star Wars prequels. Yes! <laughs> Excellent. Um, Again, not, not stereotyping ourselves in the slightest. Okay, I have a joke for you this week, because opening with a joke seems to oh, work. Oh no, are you going to do this every time? Yes. Oh no. <laughs> this is my all-time favourite joke, I, and I know you know it. What's red and bad for your teeth? <laughs> a brick. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Was that better or worse than what's the difference between a car and a cow? <laughs> I'm glad that you knew that I would not respond, so you just took it and <laughs> ran with it in your stride. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that was, I mean, it was better as a joke, but I think the fact that I got the joke before you <laughs> explained it to me last time was funny. Yeah, that <laughs> ruined my bit. Okay, without further, further ado... I'm going to plunge into my topic. I'm going first this week. I'm talking about Charlotte Mew. Uh, that is Charlotte M-E-W, as in... As in the Pokemon. That's the one. A good reference for everyone who listens. <laughs> Catching on the the poets and the Pokemon players. <laughs> um, so I'm getting all of this information off the website poetryfoundation.org, which is an amazing place to be on the internet. It is just all of everything you could ever wish to know about poets and poetry and has so many poems on it that I have discovered through this website this is just the best um, so their little biography of Charlotte Mew tells us that she was born in 1869 nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's so stupid and uh, died in don't worry about it <laughs> died in 1928 this is totally at odds by the way with the mood of Charlotte Mew because she is a very <laughs> just laughing at her <laughs> I'm not laughing at her, I'm laughing and talking about her. Her writing is quite emotionally weighty. I had not heard of her before this past week. Interesting. I'm doing an English degree, and so I read a lot of poetry. I read a lot. I read a lot of poetry. And my practical criticism class this past week, one of Charlotte Mew's poems appeared in my reading, and I thought, I've never heard of this person. Which, I'm not saying I have a complete encyclopedic knowledge of the canon as a whole, but I was surprised. No, but I mean, ev- even even before your degree, you had quite a quite a vast knowledge <laughs> of poetry beforehand. So I'd assume that it would have only expanded that. Yeah, well, I had a I had a pretty comprehensive knowledge of uh, the Neil Astley poetry anthologies. <laughs> that means so much to me. Yeah, I, me too. Neil love... Astley is uh, my favorite. This is, this is the most ridiculous sentence. Neil Astley is my favourite poetry anthologizer. Is that is that a conjugation that you're allowed to get away with that conjugation? Yeah, no, of course. An anthologizer. He creates poetry anthologies and he's great at it. And he created this these three that I can see on my shelf just here that are called Being Human, Staying Alive, and Being Alive. I love I love Neil Astley and never gonna give you up. <laughs> I'm insecure about that now. Is anthologizer a word? I love that you referenced your 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 shelf as if anyone else could see it. <laughs> well, I I had to tip back in my chair to remember what the third one was called. Anthologizer. Okay. Well, is it coming up with search results? It's coming up with Scrabble words that are allowed. So I'm going to take that. 
<laughs> you know, I trust you doing an English d- degree. It's yeah, fine. I think it's fair to say that my knowledge of poetry was great for a layman. And then when I started doing this degree, it became completely average for an English student. One of the delights of this degree, though, has been discovering so many writers who I otherwise just never would have been exposed to. So Charlotte Mew, uh, if you remember those dates there, 1869 to 1928, uh, Bridges, the kind of turn of the 20th century, um, which is an era that we mostly associate with male writers because everything is male writers. Well, yeah, everything's male-centric, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on my end, I'm a music degree student and I'm very much focused on music, so I sort of know the time scopes for, for more of the, the arts and literature in the musical then. Is is it a similar pattern in that the late 19th century, early 20th century is late romanticism bridging into the more modern? That is exactly, okay, yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Thank you, that helps. When you're in the music world, those things reflect music. When you're in the literature world, those things reflect literature, but they do actually move. Are they like tandem. a yeah, one-on-one, like synonymous? Okay. Yeah, like the Renaissance was a renaissance of like fine art, writing and music, not just like one of those things at a time. Yeah, yeah, definitely like a, a ground zero for those kind of things, yeah. Yeah, so... Charlotte Mew is in that particularly weird patch where kind of it was still the norm to write according to kind of classical forms and like you had a kind of strict... So there was a structure to adhere to, right? Yeah, yeah. so like lots of... For- like, you know, the most famous poem form is probably like the sonnet if you're talking about kind of really strict structures and things. But what happened in the kind of movement from romantic era to modern era is that you get a breakdown of those classical forms so poetry becomes i don't want to say less structured because that makes it sound like a very kind <laughs> fewer of... structured <laughs> it just it became fewer structured <laughs> using my own jokes against me <laughs> yeah but saying that it becomes less structured makes it sound like an incidental thing whereas instead you've got people like t.s Eliot and ezra pound slightly later in the century who are very intentionally deconstructing classical forms. And so Charlotte Mew is kind of right at the beginning of when that's happening. Right, okay. And you can see that in her poetry. So the poem that I had to read over the past week is called The Farmer's Bride and is from the perspective of like a farmer dude who marries a very young girl who just is is totally trapped and overwhelmed in this marriage and kind of retreats into herself it's the typical like view of marriage where marriage is an economic proposition where you i mean a little bit yeah it's quite tess of the d'urbervilles your favorite um... book (laughs) 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 i don't mind tess of the d'urbervilles it's fine Um, (laughs) yeah that's a a view you've commonly held recently i remember like having to trawl through it for a level and just be like oh this is unbearable but hardy's like prose is breathtaking and actually there were some passages at the end of test the d'urbervilles that still like move me to tears when i read them because you know all the many many hours i spend rereading the end of test the d'urbervilles. <laughs> yeah, so it's a very very common pastime view i text you and you're going yeah oh, i'm yeah. reading what test is, of the d'urbervilles again hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> hobbies include reading, i have a little, a little tally chart next to my the bed end of test of the d'urbervilles. a little tally chart next to the end of my bed which just says Kristen's reading of test of the d'urbervilles number a ticket every time you say you're doing it. <laughs> anyway, Charlotte Mew, slightly tragic life. So I was talking about The Farmer's Bride, um, which was her first kind of successful poem that sort of gained her a little bit of notoriety in kind of literary circles, um, which I believe, scrolling through the page, was published in... <laughs> yes, love, love this. Love something. this well-researched stuff. Absolutely adore it. <laughs> oh, it does say, though, on, on this kind of biography of her, 
that like people loved her. Ezra Pound and Thomas Hardy and Virginia Woolf all say that she's one of the greatest kind of female poets. Blah blah blah. Oh wow, really? I've I've never heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've never heard of her either. So she's, I guess, she kind of occupied this like the poet's poet in the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The musician's musician kind of idea. Um, yeah. Musicians, musician, the uh, the pig's pig, <laughs> the donuts, donuts. I'm a, I'm a I'm a people person. I'm a geese goose. <laughs> I'm a, I was literally just thinking that I am a geese. <laughs> I'm glad to have completely off-railed your talk on this depressive 19th century. Charlotte Mew is turning in her grave. What do they mean, a geese goose? <laughs> oh my days. So. No, okay, I'm going to give you some blunt facts which give you an image of how absolutely desolate this woman's life was. So she was born into a family of seven children. She was the eldest daughter. Three of those seven died while she was still a child. And then another two were committed to psychiatric hospitals where they lived the rest of their life. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, no, I know. And then that left only Charlotte and her sister Anne. Neither of them had children or married, basically because they didn't want to pass on any any of their pain to their children. Oh. I know. Mew was also, like, definitely a lesbian. Um, And so there are, like, lots of instances of her, like, falling real hard for people who just did not reciprocate that. Yeah, okay. Delightful description of her. I read, I went and read everything by her I could find after um, reading The Farmer's Bride. You sort of get that that passion to uh, to consume everything about them, right? Yeah, yeah. Not even because The Farmer's Bride was that captivating, but because there was something about the way it was written that was so conscious of the ways in which kind of form and culture was coming apart at the seams that was like oh and then i found her poem called madeline in church which is everything it is everything oh it's so good it's it's quite long it's all on poetry foundation i will i'll put a link in the description of wherever this podcast end up being put and i'm sure the follow-through click rate on that will be high (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm gonna put a link in the description of the picture of a geese goose and see what happens So there's there's a there's a description of her as being short and wearing male tailored suits and walking around with a black umbrella. Oh, I love that. Yes. Right? That is like, such an aesthetic. What a vibe. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, just like absolutely major lesbian energy. <laughs> like a century ahead of herself. Her one remaining sister who wasn't either dead or in a psychiatric hospital died of illness she had cancer i think oh my goodness okay and charlotte basically went mad afterwards got put into a nursing home and then in the same year killed herself oh uh it bring, brings down the mood slightly <laughs> <laughs> real real banger this week <laughs> yeah we really um, like this thing <laughs> <laughs> you know me i'm all about bts <laughs> and k-pop and also Poets who kill themselves. Depressed 19th century lesbian poet. 20th century, let's give her that. Well, a bit of both. That should prepare any of you listening who do, in fact, go look her up for some of the stuff that her poems deal with. But Madeline in Church is the one that I think I want to flag because it is just... The Farmer's Bride, would you say that was... You said it was a sad poem, like a deliberately depressive poem. I don't know that sad is quite right because... You're, you're seeing the events of the poem, which is this kind of this young girl retreating into herself in, in fright and loneliness through the eyes of the farmer who has married her. And he is very kind of confused and like, well, we've got a lot of work on the farm to do. Don't really know what's going on with my wife there. 
And so there's this really kind of tragic irony in that, like, you're looking through the eyes of someone who can't understand the situation in front of him, but you have a much better idea of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So sad is far too, like, a simplistic one to describe how complex the, the emotions that are, yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite a... It's quite an effective sort of manipulation of, of viewpoint there. But overall, you wouldn't say that the general the general mood of the poem is a positive one, right? No, I wouldn't. Would you say that would have been a, a self-reflective? Like like she was deliberately writing it about herself? I know you said she never married, but like... That's an interesting question. I feel like, considering I've only known her name for like four days... <laughs> um, yeah, mate, that's fair. <laughs> I feel like The Farmer's Bride is, is quite fictive okay yeah fair and i think the reason i really resonated with some of the other ones more is because they they're not they're much more based in reality yeah you can feel the intensity of her soul in in like madeline in church yeah i just oh it's about you know sitting in the pews of a church and staring up at images of the crucifixion and questioning salvation and god and selfhood and pain and it is breathtaking poetry i know i keep using that word but it's just one of the most powerfully human poems is it written in like a florid like way or is it written more much more the bare bones stripped down that's an interesting question difficult to describe really vivid imagery but it never it never passes into kind of being really densely obscure like it's always quite clear in its feeling and its position and the thoughts that it's dealing with um and yet it still feels kind of transcendent like it's not simple poetry um and i think yeah part of that is what i was talking about is the kind of there is a sense of meter and there is a rhyme scheme but it's not nearly as kind of rigid or as strict as like a a poem yeah that like say it was written in like ballad form or like i don't know was in a certain kind of meter and like wouldn't deviate from that so something like Wordsworth or Tennyson that's a little bit more kind of sticks to the structure this has a very real sense of like that kind of T.S. Eliot-esque swapping in and out of kind of forms and shapes and like rhyme schemes that like tumble over themselves and like I'm looking at the first paragraph of Madeline in Church and the rhyme scheme is like saint these are the end the line ending words um sorry i've got my practical criticism brain on now no it's fine it's, saint it's amazing distress <laughs> saint distress faint everlastingness day pray clay divine saint crown town taint paint mine so that kind of like sometimes it's like a the two lines next to each other rhyme sometimes it's every other then like words like saint is repeated halfway through that verse and it comes back like it's like an intense kind of I don't know, it feels like it reflects that sense of moving out of the kind of era of 19th century morals and like very structured society into the kind of early chaos of the Industrial Revolution and the emerging 20th century. And it just, yeah, it just captures something about being alive and being frightened and being a woman who is facing off with God, essentially. I just love it. I just love it. Um and I think I'm done there. I think that's, that's me. That's perfect. I think that's, I think that's yeah. pretty much bang on 15 minutes. Get in. Yeah, right right on that quarter of an hour. <laughs> One last question I have about it, which which is to do with the form or structure. Would you say that would have been a very deliberate choice that she made? Like she would have she would have noticed or acknowledged the, the more rigid structures and how people around her are coming to terms with the fact that they can break that? 
yeah i it's interesting because i used to think that that was a really important just this, this is such an english student answer but i'm gonna give it anyway i used to think there was a really like clear distinction between what a writer intended to do and the stuff that kind of happened by accident and therefore you could make a judgment about how you were supposed to read it according to which bits it meant and which bits it, it didn't i no longer think that that is the case i think that authors are at the mercy of their historical and social contexts but that doesn't mean that actually writing in a way that reflects that is any less intentional which is a very convoluted way of saying basically i think she probably definitely knew about the sort of classical disciplines um and in the same way that kind of a renaissance happens to all various art forms at once i think a breakdown of romantic form happens on every level at once and so she is writing from a position of experiencing the world turning on its axis in quite a distinct yeah, sort of and then... era ending era beginning way like there's there's a liminal quality there that i'm sure she was aware of because she's a iridescent writer that's know, not what the does right that mean? word incandescent there okay. we go <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes more sense <laughs> yeah she's an incandescent writer who yeah i don't know there's there's some big thoughts in there that i'm not quite having about like awareness of self and authorship and intention but yeah as you as you were saying i think that the 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 general romantic shift down you know as it breaks down the general structures and forms that it used to live on that Mm. sounds like the poetry that she's writing is putting a personal spin on it or like viewing it through her own lens and then yeah not even like a spin but just kind of yes yeah, really, the wrong term yeah really intelligently aware of her own situation and her own context and i think being able to articulate that is just as powerful as being able to manipulate it so even if you don't change anything about all of the kind of context yeah just being able to simply properly acknowledge it yeah and capture it like she just captures the spirit of that sort of cultural liminality but also in like a deeply intensely personal sort of yeah. liminal like oh grief is <laughs> slap me but grief is such a liminality grief is yeah cool a man space. <laughs> i want to talk about the star wars prequel um, <laughs> i do my 15 minutes no, no, is go, well go, for it, go for it go for it well, i was just saying this is this is you know i read you a couple lines from that biography um yeah and it's clear that this is a woman who lived a life that was that was shot through with grief and pain and loneliness and and hurt like the loss in her family alone is is immense yeah and that that can drive enough trauma for for a lifetime yeah, yeah. and i think it's it's difficult to really know what it's like to live a life where madness is just around the corner constantly if you if you haven't experienced that firsthand but like art that can tell you something of what that's like uh speaks to me of a very talented artist i have no way to to even remarkably put this as a this as anywhere near the same level of nuance but 
uh, here I go. My topic today is the Star Wars prequels. Woo-woo! Can I get a womp womp in the chat? Which is just so similar <laughs> in, every, in every aspect. Oh, really? Elegance, beauty, the articulation of yeah, art the... and, and sense. <laughs> the grief the romantic I don't period like sense. it's rough oi oi this is the whole point of this is unironic enthusiasm <laughs> you're making fun of it before i've even started talking true true <laughs> i am guilty so, we should have like a admittedly uh, like a penalty for if you put down someone's enthusiasm <laughs> your penalty is just uh, to, get to sit in silence and deal with it <laughs> <laughs> okay I'm zipping up. Go. So the Star Wars prequels, I think one of the main reasons I want to talk about this is because I've I've spent most of my life defending this prequels trilogy. (laughs) Whenever I say to someone... It's a rough life, man. It's a hard life, I'm going to be honest. (laughs) They say white cis males have it easy. They don't know a thing. They haven't walked a a mile in my Uggs. Uh, They... (laughs) Thank you. The Star Wars prequels are renowned to be a just just to clarify sorry just to clarify for our readers the star wars prequels are which are which of the movies they are in in chronological release order the fourth fifth sixth movies but by name and by by actual within the canon they are one two and three so they are star wars a phantom menace star wars um Attack of the Clones, and Star Wars, The Revenge of the Sith. Yes. So as a general scope, they are viewed to be, especially within our generation, I don't know about the later generations, I think earlier generations, like the people who grew up with the original Star Wars trilogy, they were disappointed by the prequels trilogy, to say the least. I think that is an almighty understanding. Yes, I know. I, I'm, I'm really selling this point. I, I think because of how great the, the, the universe and how massive a scope it was, they, you know, the freedom Star Wars provides is ridiculous. There's so much space to, to, to write within. And and we can see that with the amount of different assets that Disney has made recently because of it. You know, the Mandalorian and the, the new sequels trilogy and the, the new um, Obi-Wan series is supposed to come up soon. There's just a lot of freedom to work with. And that was felt very much during the initial trilogy's releasing. I think that was a lot of... Uh, people felt so... Like like the, the, entire, the entire universe was open to them. That was the point of it. And then the prequels kind of limited that i think was a lot of people's people's mindsets it very much narrowed it down to this tiny little story of of this naboo child i don't know why i'm trying to explain star wars everyone knows what star wars is Mm, untrue like come on the main the main demographic of people who are listening to this will know what star wars is yeah if you don't already know what naboo is you're not gonna care (laughs) and then they're not gonna have made it through charlotte muse so it's fine (laughs) (laughs) i'm joking i'm I'm but the Star Wars prequels, yeah, I think there are quite a few different topics I like to discuss. Unlike The Last of Us 2, I'm not going to go through the entire <laughs> entire plot, because that would take us an age. Um, but I want to more discuss factors of the movies, like the soundtrack, or the general dialogue, or what the actual content of it is. Yeah, sure. Tell us what you like about it. So, I think one of my favourite actual parts of it is the soundtrack i i mean i already have out of myself as a musician but the scoring for those movies is unbelievable and i think people people underestimate how much they do for them especially let's take let's take the phantom menace the the fight scene between darth maul 
and Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan. Yeah, the Duel of the Fates. That's a great That's true. That's a great tune. It's it's the it's the film that gave us the Duel of the Fates. I'd never appreciated that before. And that scene, if you, I've watched a movie a, a movie, I've watched a YouTube video where they take the, take all of the sound out of that the track and just have it with the fight. And it's so uninteresting. The fight, great. The fight's great. The choreography's amazing, and I I love it to bits. But it's it just doesn't carry it. There's nothing there. There's no there's no meat to it because you don't feel engaged with it as a viewer. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people say during the Phantom Menace that the best scenes are the pod racing scene and the Darth Maul fight scene, which I would probably agree with. Let's be real. The pod racing scene is the best scene in any movie ever. <laughs> Why do you say that? Please no. Follow follow through with that thought. Now this <laughs> is pod racing. That line alone has more dramatic narrative <laughs> weight than, oh, Shakespeare, eat your heart out. A lot of people say that, I think, because it's those two scenes where, A, there's less dialogue, which I'll get to later, and B, there's more music. There's more space for the music to be itself and to grow. And that's very true in the sense that, you know, they don't speak much. There's very few lines. And when you're writing for a movie, and I I've, I have a brief you know sort of interaction with this before but when especially if it's like john williams you know he's he's very renowned as a, as a movie scorer these days yeah when he's given the freedom to write for an entire race which has its own little narrative you know peaks and troughs throughout it he's allowed to he's allowed to score however he wants because essentially he has his own freedom now because everyone's like well just go, go to town and john it's fine <laughs> um, <laughs> um and and he does that and it's amazing i think what we should we should do sometime is sit down and watch those movies and specifically focus it on the music. Yeah. Because the scoring is unbelievable. That's a really cool argument. I'd never have thought of that. The, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is what I'm paid to do. Wait, you guys are getting paid? The second movie is often renowned by fans uh, until, you know, the sequel trilogy uh, occurred as the worst movie of the Star Wars franchise, uh, mostly due to Hayden Christensen's acting, and that's what I'm going to get onto now. <laughs> the acting and the dialogue and the general... The, the, what what the actual you know meat of the movie is the speaking between the, the characters is often seen as not good <laughs> in, in a in a in a phrase <laughs> <laughs> capital n capital g not good and there there are i think two issues there the main one being the, the actual script they were given wasn't great and i think a lot of people have pointed this out but the original trilogy the new hope empire strikes back and return of the jedi they don't really have as much talking in them. And if it's talking, it's mainly between the the golden trio, as they're called, Han Solo, Luke, and Leia. Of R2-D2, Chewbacca, and... Well, to be fair, R2-D2 and, and C-3PO have their own dynamics too, but... Oh, their banter is amazing, considering one of them doesn't speak words. <laughs> it's true, especially especially as one of them doesn't speak, yeah. It's like the dynamic between Linguini and, and Remy from Ratatouille. Thank you, I've drawn the comparison. <laughs> I was going to say, at least one of those is a type of pastor. What are you talking about? But then, yes, okay. The speaking there and the dialogue there is carried by the actual dynamic of those three. Those three already have a pre-established relationship and friendship. And you want to follow through with them because they're, they're being funny, especially Han Solo. He carries that. And I think that's a generally held opinion. Amen, sister. But the prequels, it's a very weird effect that they do where they 
they they drop you into this universe and they say you know everything about this and you're going to know everything about this you're going to know it now and they they presume that the, the audience will just pick up on it mm. and throughout it it's it's exhaustive to watch them from beginning to end without any pre-knowledge of star wars because there are so many terms and so many so many like little parts of it which seem like you have to know them but actually you don't know them because why would you what's what on earth would you know about the trade federation during star wars i mean why would you want to know that they are films which famously begin by, by a short short essay in which they give you context for what's about to happen which is not not an usual tactic yeah exactly i think back to the point of dialogue the dynamics between the, the characters isn't anywhere near as strong and one of the great points of the original trilogy is that the characters and the actors never change but the actors change quite a lot throughout the the prequels true liam neeson gave in after one episode <laughs> yes got rid of that contract as soon as he saw the, the script and and the actor change between i mean the very needed one between anakin from young child anakin to padawan i carved it from a japor snippet uh like it leaves it leaves a lot of of, of room to, you know to be desired because anakin is suddenly this new character and this new actor that you have to suddenly empathize with and because the main viewpoint with which we view the prequels is anakin he is like the focal point pretty much by the by the time you get to the second movie the first one's a bit more questionable but you have to empathize to him and two points his dialogue isn't great he's not given great dialogue as emphasized by the amount of humor that is derived from his lines alone stuff like you like sand or i don't like sand or stuff where he just screams <laughs> or where he has to deliver like an empathetic or like emotional line and he just sort of says it deadpan i don't think anything in terms of dialogue is ever going to top like peak climactic the two main dudes have turned against each other in the space of the last movie fight scene in which anakin uses the phrase in my point of view, <laughs> the Jedi are evil. as if he's in a high school debate club, like, come on. Drawing back to the score for a second, that scene alone, the fight scene between Obi-Wan and Anakin, which also has drawn a parallel at the same time between Yoda and, and Sidious, where they're fighting in, the, they're fighting in the, the throne room, as it's called, in the council, and Obi-Wan and, and Anakin are fighting on Mustafar. Yeah, I've always thought that the uh, the me channel theme was an interesting choice to to score that scene. Yeah, it was really it was really questionable when they had the little the little like flute dutes in the background. Don't try it, Anakin. I have the high ground. First off, go away. <laughs> the, the, the the fight scene there, like the actual choreography there, and the, the actual lightsaber battles is astounding, and they are really, really well put together. And if I were to say my favorite movie of of the prequels, unironically, it would be the third one because those scenes alone really save it. But removing from that, the scoring for that fight scene alone, that first off, okay, I, I need to stop nerding out, but that that fight scene is known as the longest sword fight in cinema history. Really? Yeah, it's the longest uninterrupted sword fight in cinema history. Wow. And they don't even have swords. Yeah, they don't even, well, they have their laser sword. <laughs> The fight scene is so long and the scoring, there's so little speaking, there's so little time for them to actually have dialogue with. So so John Williams just gets complete free reign for like pretty much 45 minutes of cinema time. Crikey. And the score is unbelievable. It's so good. 
and I could spend hours talking about that, so I'm not going to, but I, I implore you, both you, Kristen, and also you, the, the listener, to go listen to it. Nice. And probably the final point in the defense of, not the defense, but in my general enjoyment of, of the Star Wars prequels, is that the actual plot, if you take away all the acting and the dialogue, which I know is a very big part to take away, <laughs> um, hear me out, hear me out. Um, if, you t- if you take away the characters and generally what they say throughout the movies, uh, <laughs> um, but the general, the general overall arching plot of those three movies, which actually happens, um, if you take it from a sort of, you know, objective standpoint rather than viewing it as, you know, the actors and what they're saying, um, is is genuinely a really good setup into the into the original trilogy. If you remove all like the white noise of trade federations that they seem to have throughout it, because that was a really dumb idea that they they had, and I'm not defending that. That's that is, I can enjoy something whilst understanding that there are flaws to it. The the general actual history it provides and the the depth it, with which it covers just the star wars universe and the law behind it l-o-r-e not l-a-w mm. uh and and the actual pre-context it provides there's a really good scene i watched these uh, prequels with my girlfriend because she had never seen them and she was often toting the fan that she was a star wars fan and i i was like well you've never seen the prequels though um <laughs> and after that she said that Fake fun. after that she said well i see why i didn't see them <laughs> But we watched immediately after that the original trilogy because this was the year in which the the, the final movie, the ninth movie, the Rise of Skywalker was coming out. So we wanted to watch them all before the ninth one came out. A slapper Rooney, by the way. Uh, yeah, a banger. Um, and we watched the fourth one pretty much immediately after watching the film, like the next day. And there's this there's this bit of dialogue where Obi Wan Kenobi, now the old Ben Kenobi man in the cave, who's sort of become this hermit, talks to Luke and he describes to him the Clone Wars and the general era of knowing his father. And it feels like and i think this is true but it feels like that like 15 20 minute conversation that he has with luke pretty much wrote wrote out the entire plot of the trilogy for the prequels because watching it immediately after watching the prequels felt very much like he was just describing what i'd seen there was no plot inconsistency there was no part where i was like well that doesn't seem very true apart from the part where he just pretty much lies about his father but that's part of the story that's not part of the actual him lying about the actual narrative they provided i think that the the prequels are really well done in terms of a concept I think in theory they are a really good series and the fight scenes and the music and some not all not by any means some of the dialogue is great now this is pod racing exactly why i don't think it's all great excuse you that's the best example i think it fleshes out the series really well and i think that the fight scenes are good and actually the set design i haven't talked about that yet but that very small topic uh the set designs are really good the the actual environments that they put themselves in are great yeah i've always liked the visuals of coruscant i've always thought that was amazing yeah exactly the star wars trilogy the original one is very famously known to be on a very small budget so you can clearly tell when they're using something which is very human and that's that's fine that's a little bit of like old movie charm really that makes it much there's a nostalgia factor there sure but the actual set design and even even like the the wardrobe especially amidala her wardrobe is ridiculous but the the wardrobe of that entire trilogy and and how it looks is genuinely stunning too and one last point that if you watch those movies and you sit there and you watch it for only like the star wars dialogue or like acting that you are going to be bored and i do that too sometimes when i watch them again i i genuinely just like oh well i'm gonna just go on my phone or something i'm i'm it's not that interesting but if i watch it for a specific purpose like the music or for watching it with an intent to follow through into the next few movies with like a like a story-based idea or watching it for the fight scenes or watching it for generally more like fleshing out like stuff behind like the force or like 
Jedi Order or how it got yeah. to where it was. Especially now that we have the the more connecting bridge with with Rogue One and, and Solo, they give it more context. I think they are actually a really good, important part of Star Wars information, and I think that people should give them another chance, really, because because they're they're something I really enjoy and I like that thing. Yeah, you said the thing. I brought it back. Yes, I got it in the end. <laughs> that's actually that's a really that's a really convincing point that like people are looking for value in the wrong places also have a have a question as a follow-up um okay go for it in last week's episode you were describing some of the plot of the video game the last of us 2 and talking about how one of the kind of controversial but actually really effective things it did is take the most like sympathetic, precious characters from the first one and totally alienate you from them. So you kind of watch the main character, Ellie, become a monster. And it occurs to me that there is something similar happening in, in how Anakin is handled. Do you think that it's done well in the prequels or do you think that's a weakness? So not to draw parallels between The Last of Us 2 and, and, and Star Wars I mean, prequels. I just did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ellie's is handled in a very different way because very much solely upon the the basis that you play as ellie you are physically interacting with ellie you are Mm. you are making her do the actions that are on the screen there is no there is no barrier between that there's a very simple you press this button and she does the thing um you feel very much more involved with ellie and there's specifically for her first half of the game ellie is the lens with which you view the game there is no other way to to interact with it there is no other storyline there is no branching path it's just ellie and you have to watch her be alienated to you and there is nothing nothing else to be drawn from that whilst if you take it from anakin's perspective throughout the entire star wars prequels you get so many different plot lines so many different people to view it with and it's very definitely centric upon anakin that's the whole point he becomes vader that's the whole storyline you know if you were to describe the prequels in one like sentence it would be watch as a little boy becomes corrupted through the jedi order to become darth vader he is the the center point but he is not the only lens with which you view the world in star wars prequels he is yes true he is one he is one character and he is very much you know you're supposed to follow him and be like wow you shouldn't have probably killed all those small children (laughs) but he is not the only character you can view it with and i think very definitely by the end you're viewing it through obi-wan yeah once they've had the fight on mustafar like it's turned to obi-wan's perspective and how he's getting luke and leia around to the specific families and it's very much telling a narrative about star wars there's not one word to describe it but there's telling telling the story about this power struggle which happens with this corrupt leader of of you know palpatine and how he becomes sidious or how he already is sidious i guess and there's so many different intricate plot lines that are happening and there's definitely that happening in the last of us too i'm not demeaning that but to address the second part of your question, is it handled well? I would say not as well as or as airtight as, as The Last of Us 2. It's definitely not. Yeah, that's fair. But that comes, that's part of the property. It, it comes with the fact that it's not as focused on. It's not as fleshed out. It's not as important throughout the, the plot line because Ellie is like the only thing you play as for 30 hours. So there's no, there's no way for you to be deviated from that. Yeah, yeah, I see that. That's immensely intense. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Which is why the, the game works so well because you feel so connected to the character and so alienated when she does something you don't agree with. You're like, Ellie, what are you doing? Whilst with Anakin, it's more you're watching something on a screen. In the second movie, he does, he goes to the camp where his mother's been enslaved and taken away from him and essentially 
left out to die and he goes and kills them all and you have to turn your brain on to empathize with him you're like well you know he's still the same old anakin we know and love and <laughs> and he, yeah. he may have may have done a few things wrong i don't know <laughs> some moral gray area here but yeah, yeah so he comes back immediately and starts crying to his girlfriend and you feel like he really genuinely feels remorse about it and there's this is really gray conflict and that's really well handled actually in the sequels of star wars where they talk about the gray jedi the the gray order of the force where Ray and not to spoil all of Star Wars for the listeners, but Ray and uh, Kylo or Ben are the grey Jedi, and they don't exist in this light or dark Star Wars anymore. And that's that's actually in Swator, Star Wars: The Old Republic, uh, which is a which is a a universe set before the 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 events of the prequels. Nice. Um, there is there, Star Wars that, that is an existence of the Jedi Order. That's a specific. Not not within the more Coruscant, you know, mainstream Jedi, which are understood to be the more peaceful, trying to negotiate Jedi, but this more removed yeah. um, following of Jedi called the Grey Order, where they they do have this grey moral sense of of you know we're not we're not perfect and we're not evil either. We we exist in the middle, and that's something which everyone has to accept. And that they never really covered that uh, that era in Star Wars, the main you know Anakin. What's, sorry, it's the Skywalker saga now, isn't it? Yeah, in the main franchise, yeah. Until right at the end, where essentially Rey is dictated to be, she's a child of Palpatine, but still, she's a good person. And she can exist with this light and dark in her, and it's allowed. It's, it's something which is uh, really, actually, genuinely encouraged. Because I think at the heart of the, the prequels, one of the main issues for Anakin is that the, the Jedi are trying to enforce this very one-note good side and they didn't they didn't they didn't ever stick to it really because once yeah once they once they discovered palpatine might be evil they they broke all their principles and alakin didn't agree with that and he felt isolated by that and was left unsure and unaware of what to do and there's a very interesting argument to be had for you know obi-wan is very much like a brother to him you're like a brother to me anakin (laughs) exactly um but palpatine (laughs) is very much not really put into screen but in the clone in the clone wars the, the 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 tv franchise but also generally presumed throughout the movies there is this sense that palpatine has very much been a father figure to him and he's you know mentored him and looked after him his friend palpatine yeah exactly and and, and his pal friend patine and that is a great place to end my talk about the star wars prequel <laughs> but i i genuinely think that it could have been handled better but that would have been at the loss of other things which fleshed out the universe so i think they 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 took what they could um and tried to do it but i'm not saying it was perfect by any means but they really they really did their best job but it doesn't have to be perfect you like this thing i would say for one last point that i do know i come on listeners i do understand <laughs> that that the, the, the some of the scenes just really are bad they're not they're not they're not good and and that's okay yeah. it's okay for it's okay for some of these movies that i enjoy to not actually be objectively great amen sister but i uh, you will find as i probably will cover this in many more podcast episodes that i am not a fan of the great cinema i in fact (laughs) in fact i seem to have a a loving for the for the opposite citizen kane more like citizen pain (laughs) yeah more more, more like belongs in the trash (laughs) (laughs) frankly my dear i've gone with the wind i'm glad that this 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 serious talk about the star wars prequels has ended in revelry (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just devolved into my favourite Twitter memes. 
honestly, I think one of the strongest arguments for the Star Wars prequels is the is amount the, of meme the, that it created. Yeah. The meme culture that has been born out of it is absolutely superb. Yeah. Like, so tasty. For our generation, the prequels were very influential for us. Not really the reason why the original trilogy was influential for their generation. <laughs> Ours was more to be able to point at it and laugh. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, though, because I think, like, I, you know, uh, some of my housemates recently watched Star Wars for the first time and they were like eh yeah it's fine like they hadn't seen any Star Wars they didn't grow up with it I think they started with the original I might be wrong but like they watched them all they were you know faithful to the to the canon and went through all the movies but they were just kind of like I don't really get it and it was you know the original films don't stand up too much on their own legs they stand up on the power of the like cultural nostalgia and I think the prequels has done the same thing, but for your generation rather than like our parents' generation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think the sequels will have done the same thing for people born 15 years after us. Or me. That too. I, I really like the sequels. No, 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 I get that. I, and I and I, I think there's a, there's an argument to be had there too. But Oh, maybe I'll do an episode on it. Yeah, you're not wrong. As, as you say, I think if you don't grow up with it and if you don't have it at this sort of epic tale of, 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 of Star War. Like, I remember the number of like pizza parties you had with your like big group of school friends where you would just like bomb through the prequels and have the best time like it was so fun i would be like lying in bed with my with my pillow over my head trying to ignore the chorus of <laughs> it's over Anakin, i have the high ground but that's that's where that's where i've derived a lot of fun from the, the series yeah uh, like being able to watch it with friends and like accept that it's not a great movie but also have a complete whale of a time making fun of it and enjoying it and that is what it's about, honestly. You know, it's entertainment. Yeah, exactly. Thriving within the, the understanding that it's not great, but you're still going to love it anyway. <laughs> yeah, totally. Man. I think that is an excellent note on which to call this episode of I Like This Thing to a close. I think my topic was about half an hour long. <laughs> <laughs> That's my fault, though. You'd actually done pretty well at sticking to the 15 minutes, and then I asked you a, a deep analysis question, and you talked for another 15 minutes, so that's on me i've thoroughly i've thoroughly enjoyed this this episode it's been great some real tone shifts <laughs> and and to everyone who has stuck it out this long thank you so much thank for you listening. i am so surprised uh, as anyone's still here this has been silly songs with larry the <laughs> part of the show where larry comes out and sings a silly song <laughs> all right goodbye and good night bye and that is the end of the podcast if you liked it, let us know and maybe tell a friend. Until next week, have a good one. Bye.